0: When we last got together uh, two weeks ago, the topic or theme was on the art of practice. And I spent some time talking about practice as a sacred ritual uh, and a creative ritual, not in any way rigid, but rather uh, a way to keep learning how to come into the present moment given our conditioning to exit out at a moment's notice. And we talked about the different uh, components of practice, for those of you that weren't here, specifically about how we can use relaxation and concentration, aiming the mind, and then the mindfulness, the recognition of what's happening, as ways to fully be here, fully live the moments. And one of the things that starts coming clearer as we explore practice and what the components are Is that in this tradition of uh, it's a wisdom tradition of awakening the heart mind? There really are what are called two forms of practice, and one of them has to do with uh, doings, skillful means. We use the metaphor of cultivating a garden. It's the the watering and the pruning and so on. And the doings are when we aim our mind at the breath, or when we name things. Ah, thinking, thinking or when we consciously soften a certain area, or when we offer metta, or loving-kindness, to a part of ourselves or each other. These are all doings, and they're useful, valuable, helpful doings. That's why the Buddha described them as skillful means that are part of preparing the garden of awareness. They, They loosen the soil up and they make it fertile. The actual experience of awakening is a non-doing. And for us to be fully free, to discover fully who we are and what this life is, there's a natural kind of progression of skillful doing so that we can just rest in awareness. And there's even an important distinction between the kind of mindfulness that, that takes some effort and is developing a sense of presence and a much more profound kind of mindfulness, whereby we relax, really relax, back into our already present innate awareness. Doing and non-doing. And this isn't to create doing as the bad guy. Now what's interesting, this is what we find out as we go deeper into spiritual practice, is that how we approach our day-to-day life, the doings of our day-to-day life carries over and we end up approaching meditation even the skillful means with some of the same stuff that we bring into daily life. And that's not, there's nothing weird, it's just something that we have to begin to include in awareness so we don't get snagged. I'll give you some examples. If we're the kind of person that is a go-getter that strives and idealizes and charges through life and pushes and so on, we'll find we do it some with meditation practice. We'll set up goals and have ideals and really try hard and aim the mind and really notice when we're getting lost and, and celebrate the days that we're not often thoughts too much and really get down, you know, you get the picture. So that's, that's one type, you know. And there's a sense under that of falling short, that there's something to lose if we don't do it right, and that we need to apply ourselves really vigorously, you know. And then there's other temperaments that have that same sense of inadequacy—that something's wrong—and and that some falling short. Except for the responses, eh? Might as well not try, you know. It's kind of a withdrawal, a quick giving up, and there's a sense of it's too hard. I mean, this this spiritual stuff sounds really good, and boy, I wish I could have that freedom, but. That's beyond me this lifetime. So the effort's half-hearted. And then there's a similar response whereby uh, there's a sense of um, it's a little too much and we get mechanical. Kind of a habitual way of being a bit preoccupied but going through the motions of meditation because we think it's a good thing to do. Now if you were reflecting on where you fit in on some of these more neurotic approaches to meditation, which are universal. And if you said yes to all of the above, that's normal too. Because I could say yes to all of the above, depending on where I'm at. This is just fight or flight. This is the way we grasp and resist, and we'll bring it to meditation practice too. The common denominator is if we approach our spiritual path with a sense of I'm not good enough as I am, I need to improve, I'm falling short, I'm not enough, I need to get better, those fears will end us up having us do the skillful means with a flavor of fear and wanting, grasping and resistance. You understand? So it's something to notice, to keep watching for, this sense of not good enough. the title of tonight's talk, um, and it's a talk that um, I've given, oh, a while ago, so some of you might have the tape, is the transformative power of wakeful relaxation. That instead of bringing this sense of not enough, something's wrong to practice, how can we bring a quality of alertness but ease even to our sense of grief, or sadness, or pain, or fear, or non-relaxation? Especially if we're strivers, how do we do that? For the first 15 years of practice um, in my life, probably from age 19 on, um, periodically I would go and check in with whoever was my current predominant teacher of the time, and, and ask how I was doing. And I worked really hard in those early years. You know, We'd get up early, and I'd spend long hours and really try to perfect concentration. And I was the classic type-A striver. And without fail, every teacher that I respected responded the same way. They'd, I'd look at them earnestly and tell them what I was doing and ask how I could improve. And they'd just kind of in some way say, chill out, but do it more poetically. You know? <laughs> they tell me to relax. So then for the last 10 years, I've been telling myself to relax. You know, It's my inner coach. It's usually saying, just calm down. It's okay. It's okay. It's probably one of the all-time great mantras of the universe. So I'd like to spend the next 30 minutes or so um, talking to you about relaxing. But not relaxing in a dull, drifty, trancy way. Relaxing in a very wakeful, transformative way. Now, when I was given the message, oh, just relax, I would always be slightly offended because there's something really embarrassing about people telling you to relax. (laughs) And also it would totally ring true. Like there's something deep in us all intuitively that knows that it's the only way. You can't struggle your way to freedom. It's a relaxing. Let me read you um, one of the poems I heard in my first Buddhist mindfulness meditation retreat. This is called Duck Meditation and some of you know it. Now we are ready to look at something pretty special. It is a duck riding the ocean a hundred feet beyond the surf as he cuddles in the swells There is a big heaving in the Atlantic and he is part of it. He can rest while the Atlantic heaves because he rests in the Atlantic. Probably he doesn't know how large the ocean is and neither do you. But he, he realizes it somewhere and what does he do, I ask you? He sits down in it. Duck meditation. He reposes in the immediate as if it were infinity, which it is. That is religion and the duck has it. How about you? Duck meditation. So it's relaxing. Relaxing back into this moment. Into a very natural kind of awareness. But it's not being blank or inactive. In fact, you could consider it that we're cultivating wakeful relaxation response. And I referred to it some, a couple of weeks ago, um, talking about the way that we can consciously relax through our body, and there's a Chinese word, song, S-O-N-G, which is relaxation filled with awareness. This quality of presence, this relaxation that's just vibrating with awareness, is very central to mindfulness. We can't be here with the fullness of our mind, with the fullness of our heart. We can't be whole if we're contracted and defending, judging, anxious about not enough. The other side of it is when we are relaxed, we open to a natural sense of intimacy we know that everyone loves being relaxed. It's one of those universals. We kind of yearn for it and we sense it as being really basic to being happy. And yet it's so hard sometimes. It's what we find natural to be uptight, actually. It's a basic weather system. And I feel like it's really important to recognize that if we start off, you know, let's say tonight framing it that relaxation is the essence of mindfulness. And then we scan and go, boy, I'm relaxed maybe one, one hundredth of my day. That kind of um, sounds like bad news. So it becomes important to recognize that just like every other life form in existence, we're physiologically designed to tense up against any perceived threat, every one of us, which means we're designed to spend a lot of time tense. We are. I mean, how often do you see rabbits or mice or other life forms really being casual, <laughs> laid back, at ease? I mean, really, there's a lot of natural predators, and they dart around, and they're always senses are out. Whether they're they're not just like smelling the roses, they're you know picking up danger signals. So it's evolutionary training that we anticipate where danger is, and we're tense to respond. And then what happens is we get quite attached to our defense system, and we expand upon it. It gets elaborate, and it becomes kind of continuous, so that even when there's really nothing around the corner that we can see that we need to be tense about, there's this kind of free-floating anxiety. And we know what that's like. You can just feel it in your body, and it's just there. So we have this kind of paradox where in our culture the American dream it's kind of work real hard, strive, be a type A, you know, really go for it, so that you make a lot of money and have the freedom to then retire and kick back and relax and become a type, you know, take it easy type, you know? And we don't know how. It's impossible. It's karma. You cannot strive, strive, strive and then relax and let be and enjoy life as it comes. But most of us procrastinate letting be. Somewhere in our mind we have it figured that as soon as X, Y, or Z, when I get this done or get over this hump or feel better about such and such then I'll let go and, and try this kind of relaxing and opening to the moment business. Our relaxing doesn't come easy because we spend most of our day grasping and resisting as a way to maximize pleasure and avoid pain. And we are designed to do that. And if you really watch yourself, it's interesting during the day how much of our movement, physically and mentally, is to get more comfortable, to get less uncomfortable. You know, a slight pain in the leg and we move when we're sitting and meditating. Or if during the day there's a sense of restlessness, we'll seek entertainment. Or if we get anxious that we're not doing enough, we'll make a phone call just to stay busy. Or if something seems like it's going wrong, we amp up on the worry thoughts. If something tastes good, we eat more of it and more of it. We just are constantly moving towards something or away from something And rarely, rare moments, just stopping, just pausing, just being here. So the teachings of the Buddha that we know that ultimately we can't control it, that this changing life will keep changing and there's nothing we can hold on to, that even though we know that we still are all of us hooked in some fashion trying to make it work and avoid what doesn't work Kafka writes you can hold back from the pain of the world you have free permission to do so and it is in accordance with your nature but perhaps this very holding back is the one suffering you could have avoided That's powerful. It's our conditioning. It's our biology to grasp, to resist, to move, to go towards, to go away from. And yet it's also our capacity to begin to recognize that, to not be so caught in it. And we can see in our lives the suffering of it. We can see how every day we're struggling. Most of us can recognize that, that in some way every day there's judgments We use judging to try to get better. You know, if I judge myself enough, I'll improve. So we're always judging ourselves or judging others or manipulating this or tensing against that. We don't have that much ease in our life because we're busy trying to control our inner experience. I want to read to you a little bit. This is um, from The Right Stuff by Tom Wolfe. And he describes in in this book how the Air Force was developing rocket planes like the X-15 in the 50s. Here's what he writes. You were flying at an altitude in the thin air at the edge of space where the stars and the moon came out at noon in an atmosphere so thin that the ordinary laws of aerodynamics no longer applied and a plane could skid into a flat spin like a cereal bowl on a waxed formica counter and then start tumbling not spinning and diving but tumbling end over end now as it happens as many of you might know that in the 50s we lost a lot of uh, test flight pilots because of this this tumbling that would happen when they get way out there quote again they used to play tapes of pilots going into the final dive the one that killed them and the man would be tumbling going end over end all the aerodynamics long gone and not one prayer left and he knew it and he would be screaming into the microphone I've tried A I've tried B I've tried C I've tried D what do I do next what do I do next and this is a mantra for us too what do I do what do I do but it turned out there was no way to maneuver out of a hypersonic tumble The pilot took a furious beating from the g-forces and from being thrown about the cockpit. In fact, the more the pilot experimented with the controls, the more he tried to do, the worse fix he was in. The solution, this is what Wolf writes, became clear after an accident involving test pilot Chuck Yeager, who was battered unconscious and fell seven miles before hitting the denser atmosphere and coming to and then he could put the ship back into a spin because a mere spin he knew how to uh, get out of and he survived so that was the solution and it defied every bit of training every shred of instinct everything the pilots knew or thought they knew you take your hands off the controls you sit there and do absolutely nothing but sit there and fall you take your hands off the controls in fact That was the only choice you had. I thought this was a wonderful kind of metaphor for what it is we're actually doing or not doing here. This taking our hands off the controls. I mean, how many moments of our lives do we just totally stop this sense of a self as an agent, trying to do, fix, avoid, get something? Just take our hands off the controls. So meditation is actually the most radical practice in the world because we have all this conditioning to, just like those pilots, try A, B, C, D and frantically try to figure out what the next thing is. And instead, we are training to wakefully relax in the midst of our experience, in the face of all conditioning, to just let be. Now this does not mean to not respond. In fact, and this is something you can see when you look at beings that actually practice quite deeply our capacity to respond depends on being able to not react Okay, more on that later so this relaxation training this wakeful relaxation training starts with our bodies we start with the first foundation it's the most immediate obvious place of contraction and you can scan scan right now Scan anytime and you'll find that almost always if you're aware of your body you'll be aware of tightenings tension. We all are. We're biologically designed that way. So the first foundation of mindfulness is becoming aware of posture and movements and sensations and breath and aware of this flux of contracting and letting go. The body is a really clear subject for awareness um, and it allows for a deeply grounded attention in day-to-day life. In fact, if there's anything you practice through the week in an informal way, it can be mindfulness of the body. Ah, what's true now coming back again and again. And what we find? We constantly recontract. Every time we let go some and soften and relax, it recontracts. And that's okay. That's the practice. We just again let go. One of my favorite stories, a family all treated their elderly grandfather, the kind of the patriarch of the family, to his first plane ride. And he went up in one of those biplanes that <laughs> dips around and does stuff, and it was very exciting because you know, this is this was a very old man that had kind of lived through the generations and not actually had, you know, himself gone flying so they sent him up and he did one of those you know how they do those 15 minute trips where they dip around and, and the grandchildren and, the, and his adult children were down there kind of cheering him on and he got down and he was kind of stiff and white and they said did you like it he goes oh yeah I liked it a lot it was, it was great and, did you really like it yeah I really liked it And he goes but you know I never let my weight down <laughs> he held it up the whole time as if that would help We're all kind of like those pilots in uh, Tom Wolfe's description. You know, We're all, at times, in a supersonic tumble. And there's stuff that's going to happen where the inevitable ending will be death. In fact, that is the trip we're on. So the question is, how do we live it? Are we constantly holding our weight up? Are we clenched? Are we defending? Are we anticipating? Are we pretending? Or are we beginning to learn this moment, this one right now, just to drop back again? Ah! To relax back really into that already present innate awareness which is our nature. And our training is this this idea of song, of softening, and just feeling in our body what's true. Pleasure, pain, tingling, whatever's there, the aliveness, to let down our weight. Our practice is when we encounter something that's unpleasant, we begin to sense the contraction, and that's okay, and notice that, and see if we can soften around that. In other words, we relax in relating to being not relaxed. This isn't about setting an ideal that we should be in a permanent state of relaxation. This is about relating to however it is with a quality of presence and ease. Saying yes, allowing it. So that's the first foundation of mindfulness, where we train in this wakeful letting go. And then there's the foundations of mental states and emotions. There's so many that come that we get lost in and when we're lost in them they are the world that weather system of grief or fear or shame is who we are and our being contracts into that shape so again the practice is to recognize to relax and make room, relax our heart I remember some years ago Joseph Goldstein said you know When I'm working with really hard emotions, when something really big comes up, I just tell myself, relax your heart. And there's something very powerful about that, because when we get afraid, our heart contracts, and then there's not the room or the space to be with, to let that weather system come and go, and teach us, and awaken us. To relax our hearts, to include and let float whatever's there. And then there's this training and wakeful relaxation when thoughts arise. Now what normally happens when we get a thought and we go thinking, thinking? Sometimes we go back to the breath, or sometimes we judge ourselves and go, oh, thinking, you know, and get into a thing about how we're not a good meditator. If we're having worry thoughts, tension thoughts, then what usually follows? Problem solving thoughts. Isn't that true? when we start having anxiety thoughts immediately it flips into what can i do to get rid of this and we believe in our thoughts we use our thoughts as the major coping strategy to deal with anxiety so it becomes a really important place to wake up sometimes we try to use our thoughts to calm us down oh it's going to be ok and we imagine how things can unravel and be ok and or it's not so important, or we try to paint things in a better light. Don't we? We use our thinking a lot. Sometimes it's skillful, too. But it's not deeply freeing. So somebody handed me this. This is an example of, you know, a lot of us that are getting more and more computer dependent, a lot of our anxieties are wrapped around, you know, if something goes wrong with the computer. So these are this says, imagine if instead of cryptic text strings your computer produced error messages in haiku-verse <laughs> here's one a file that big, it might be very useful but now it is gone <laughs> <laughs> here's another first snow, then silence this thousand dollar screen dies so beautifully <laughs> Here's another. A crash reduces your expensive computer to a simple stone. (laughs) Three things are certain. Death, taxes, and lost data. Guess which has occurred. (laughs) Rather than a beep or a rude error message, these words, file not found. (laughs) We use language to ease. There was this also on haiku. There was uh, a picture with a male and a female, and they're in bed, and she's looking really disgruntled. And he's saying, yes, I write haiku. They're short and over in a moment. Just what are you implying? (laughs) That's a slow one. It's a creeper. (laughs) So a huge area of our practice is being aware of how our thoughts are in service of trying to be more comfortable and be less uncomfortable. To watch our thoughts and how they're there to try to make us feel like we have a solution, to try to fix, to plan, to worry. The challenge is to relax open and soften and be present when we recognize those thoughts. But the challenge underneath that is, how do you be okay with what doesn't feel okay? Right? I mean, those thoughts are all cooking because there's a not okay feeling, and thoughts are our way to try to make it better. So if we're giving up that way, if we're going to see it and be mindful of it and not live it out, how do we find a quality of okayness? How do we make peace with what really, in our bodies, feels close to intolerable sometimes. In daily life we can see that problem. Here we have this kind of vision and inspiration to be open-hearted in relationship. How do we do that when we can see clearly how much capacity we have to cause pain to others and they have to cause pain to us? How do you stay open? How do you be okay about that? And that's the end of the talk. (laughs) Isn't that the toughie, though? That we know we value open-heartedness, not being defensive, not being judgmental, and yet we all feel the quality of um, endangerment. So there's the third Zen patriarch. And he's one of my great gurus, um, mostly for this phrase, that to be free, to be enlightened, is to be without anxiety about imperfection. To be without anxiety about imperfection. In fact, imperfection's how it is. So it's saying, okay, here's how it is. The Elizabeth Kubler-Ross version is, I'm not okay, you're not okay, and it's okay, right? (laughs) But it really is the key for wakeful relaxation, for being present, is this sense of being okay about the fact that, yes, I will be imperfect, and out of my greed, and out of my fear and insecurity sometimes cause pain to others, and others will sometimes cause pain to me. And it doesn't mean we don't respond wisely. It doesn't mean we don't sometimes create real boundaries. But the possibility is to open to imperfection and keep our hearts open. To trust the essence of who we are in the midst. I'll tell you a personal story where this became um, quite a teaching for me. Um, I've described a number of times in here how I spent uh, 12 years living in an ashram and while there were many really wonderful things about it um, beautiful practices and inspiring, growthful experiences um, the leader of the group was um, charismatic in one way but also power-hungry and abusive in several instances that I knew about and my parents were very reactive towards the fact that I was in this cult-like group with a charismatic, cult-like leader. It was a cult, and he was a cult leader, you know. And and they were understandably upset. But my mother, in particular, felt that it was her duty as my mother to be constantly uptight, negative, and you know, throwing out uh, vehemently negative phrases about this leader. That was her job, you know. She was my mother, and she was there to to defend me. So she she could never relax. It's like there was almost no conversation that didn't make its way back to how I was potentially the victim of a a charismatic, violent person. Well, as it happens, I left this group and. over the years my, what my mother discovered was that I survived you know, it I was alright I learned some stuff and I made it out, you know, with some scars but okay, and you know, she began, she in retrospect was able to respect and understand what brought me in and what I got and how it, it was just a phase and so she was upset about the fact that so much distance had been recre- been created by her chronic anxiety and worry, and so she asked me, well how Could I have done it differently? And we've, you know, spent some time processing this. And what I ended up telling her after really considering it, is that if she had, in the biggest way, communicated, I trust you. You know, I trust who you are and I trust you're okay. And here's my concerns. I might have been able to listen more. I probably would have just done exactly what I did. But there wouldn't have been this kind of estrangement between us. I could have heard more if she had created a larger space of respecting kind of my inner nature. So it's helped me a whole lot. Being now the mother of a 12-year-old who's into everything I don't like, you know. I mean, and there's many things that are wonderful about him, but you know, his world is very. You know, he really loves ele- living in electronic world and. Um, could you know, be in a beautiful 75-degree uh, winter day and not go out. You know, And so what I have to go through is that same sense of, okay, so everyone goes through phases and to really reflect on his nature, the nature behind the weather systems, to really see who's there. Um, it's such a gift to ourselves and our loved ones when we don't get reactive around all the different phases, when somehow or other we uphold this sense of who that being is, the love in their heart, their natural wisdom, that doesn't mean they're not going to get hurt. This is not saying, you know, trust their Buddha nature and guaranteed they'll never get hurt. They'll get wounded, and we got wounded. But there's the gift in it is, when we can continue to see the light of that being, it helps them to see that in themselves. And it helps them to trust that. And that very quality of confidence and trust will help them to wake up through any situation that they're in. So that was a real painful one for me because my mother's one of my best friends and to have that estrangement was actually one of the great lessons for me. How to respond and not react what most of us know is that when we do react fear based reactivity never works we never get what we want we certainly never persuade anybody else in any useful direction so what we find is that when we can get to a place in our own being of honoring another of trusting who they are then what we put out our response to them is healing then it's got a capacity to make a difference. And this is the same in facing our own imperfections. The phases and the weather systems that we get trapped in. If there's some way that we can go, yes, I'm very stuck and I'm acting very petty or greedy or needy or whatever and trusting. It's just a weather system and it's okay. And they come and they go and who we are in our depth are beings that really long To wake up, to love, to be loved, to be creative It's who we are So a very basic piece in this practice of wakeful relaxation Is that we learn to uh, wake up through the difficulties Include them, learn from them and not reject them, the difficulties of our own imperfections and others. And there's a Western example of the same teaching um, that I ran to about a year ago. A reporter asked a bank president who is very well known in the bank and business world, sir, what is the secret of your success? And he said, two words. And the reporter said, what? And he goes, right decisions. And how do you make the right decisions? One word. And what is that, sir? Experience. And how do you get experience? Two words. And sir, what are they? Wrong decisions. (laughs) And it's true in every spiritual tradition that whatever's arising is just right to wake us up. Whatever's going on in our lives right this moment that we keep judging as wrong or imperfect or we don't want it is perfect for us. So the big question, you know, can we relax about who we are right now? I mean, just this moment, can we say, okay, this sensation of bodily experience, this cluster of emotions, these representations of the world through thought process. This phase of life, these beings in my life, can this all be included? Really, without rejecting anything. This isn't a project for the future. This is something that really brings our practice alive day by day. May I accept myself as I am this moment? Our experience is to judge, to push away, to contract, to identify as a small self that's beleaguered or victimized or something's wrong. So this practice of wakeful relaxation means to open to all those waves of fear, of unpleasantness. And it's in all the foundations. It's in the body, to keep opening again and again in the body and the heart. Now this is the heart of our practice. This opening to what we normally close to. This saying it's okay to what we normally push away. And the reason it's the heart of our practice, and this is how the Buddha described it, is that when we resist, when we push away, tense, stay tight, fight, struggle, we maintain a sense of small self. In the moments that we stop controlling that we take our hands off the panels and just let be we wake up out of that sense of small self we discover what has been described as our innate nature our essence a very free and open and loving and wakeful awareness that's who we are it's our way of discovering that to just let go moment by moment it's been described as liberation through non-clinging. Let's reflect for a moment. If, you're, if you've been sitting very still, stretch for a moment and then come sitting again. And we'll just do a brief kind of exploration of this. So take a moment and, as much as possible, let your weight down. Soften the belly and feel aliveness in the body. Establishing a sense of genuine presence. And then, if you will, to bring to mind what you might relate to when I say imperfection, an area of reactivity in your life. It might be um, imperfection, reactivity to your own body, or your own emotional life. Or it might be an imperfect situation with another person that keeps on bringing up reaction. And see if you can sense and relate to just how big that reactivity gets sometimes so that you're honestly looking at and relating to the reactivity that we all experience might be the judgment of another person or the judgment of yourself or the not liking or the really wanting something different and see if you can let it be as full as it is this reactivity so that you know what it's like in your body it might take really sensing the image of another person or situation hearing the words that you say to yourself or someone says to you so that you can sense in your body fully okay reactivity and sense what yourself is like what's your sense of self the who am I when you're feeling that what do you like from the inside, being aware of the reactive self, the I don't like, I want, not good enough, afraid. And as you do this now, see if you can in the depth of your being agree to make room, as much room for this reactivity the aversion, the wanting, the fear so that you gradually soften around it and just let it be there as much as it wants to be but be aware of the space that you're making so that you're bringing an open, kind attention, or awareness, to the waves of experience. Not fighting them, not fighting the reactivity, just letting it be there, as big as it wants to be, but making room. So in some quiet way, you're saying, yes, okay, this can be felt you're relaxing open and making room letting it be as much as it wants to be but sensing awareness as the space that it's happening in that you can breathe in and feel it fully but also breathe out and offer care, compassion space Sensing as you make room for this imperfection, this situation or experience. Sense as you do that who you are now. What's your sense of your being now? Who am I? Who am I? The path of awakening is the path of opening and letting go into the life that's here and becoming that open, compassionate space. As the Indian poet Ghalib wrote, for the raindrop, joy is in entering the river. Travel far enough into sorrow, tears turn into sighing when after heavy rain the storm clouds disperse is it not that they've wept themselves clear to the end for the raindrop joy is in entering the river can we let go and relax into what is without anxiety about imperfection just letting this life be and discovering the awareness it has room. This means opening to the space of awareness where there's room for pain, for joy, for all of life. If you'd like, you can open your eyes and move. And it's important to, to recognize that this cultivation of wakeful relaxation, of responding this way, especially when we have strong conditioning, is quite gradual. And sometimes we can, and sometimes we can't. So it's really one of these things to be quite accepting about the fact that we can't always get out of our conditioning. It just happens that way. This practice of not doing, of just letting be and creating space, uh, really requires a regularity because the conditioning is so strong. And we start, as we're sitting in meditation, with situations we can handle. We sit still and, and unpleasantness or excitement or fear or worry or whatever arises, and we just gradually train in recognizing and relaxing. Recognizing, relaxing the heart, as Joseph described. Recognizing and just letting go into what's real, this moment. If there's too much disturbance, the conditioning's too strong, too much aversion. We take a break. We stand up. We move around. We talk to a friend. We get soothing in some way. We write a haiku about it, whatever. But, you know, the idea is that we gradually have more and more capacity to feel okay about what's not okay. This is David White. Enough. Enough these few words are enough. If not, these words, this breath. If not, this breath, this sitting here. This opening to the life we have refused again and again until now. Until now. Enough. So eventually for each of us we all face the kind of um, unpleasantness where there's no options. Again, like those pilots, we've run out of them. And our meditation training trains us to let go. Trains us to do the one thing which makes it possible to free ourselves. To not do. To let go. This is in the face of the the situations where there really isn't any way to get comfortable, the losses of aging and sickness and death, which we all face. So learning to let go gives a tremendous freedom. In fact, each moment that we let go when habitually we would have resisted inclines us towards more confidence. We start getting, Chogyam Trungpa put it this way, that sense that life really is workable, that we have room for life and death. And this trusting the capacity of our being to be with really gives a sense of ease or freedom. I love the way Ryakan describes it. He says, uh, to find the Buddhist law, drift east and west, come and go, entrusting yourself to the wave. Entrusting yourself to the wave. So this is one fruit of this practice of wakeful relaxation, that we cultivate a sense of trusting. We start getting the knack of taking our hands off the controls and feeling the vitality and creativity and adventure and excitement and realness of it all. Another fruit of this letting go, letting be, just pausing and not reacting, is a cultivation of a very real experience of wisdom and compassion. It's what I mentioned earlier, that if we don't react in our habitual ways to each other, and we can just sit and relax into what feels not okay, we have the possibility of then touching each other in a genuine and healing way. So one way, one result of this practice of relaxing, confidence. Another this cultivation of wisdom and compassion. I'd like to mention a third, which I've been alluding to, which is that it actually gives us the capacity to enjoy life. We can't really enjoy it if we're busy controlling stuff. We all know that. It's like our senses are not open and receptive and engaged if we're tensed against things. We can't enjoy the pleasures either. William Blake writes, he Who binds to himself a joy Does the winged life destroy But he who kisses the joy as it flies Lives in eternity's sunrise You know this one If we hold on tight, we lose it If we bow If we worship, if we praise If we feel appreciation It changes, it comes, it goes And our hearts and minds are open and free and delighted. So this is the path of intimacy to be with dear ones. That we stop controlling, that we can experience that quality of openness and tenderness and playfulness. That we can be in nature and put down our worries and our planning mind, even a little, to listen to the wind and the rain and feel the breeze and see the silhouette of the trees, and smell, and embrace our life. We have these very deeply grooved ways of not being here. So this practice needs to be woven into all of our life. It's like during the day to just pause again and again and see if you can let your weight down. This moment, once again, wherever your mind is, right now, again, Can you re-relax? Can you go into the very real, immediate, and mysterious experience of bodily sensation? Relaxing into the moment. I started this evening talking about how we can't struggle our way to enlightenment. It's not one of those uh, tense your muscles and grit your teeth and then find God kind of routines, right? You know? In fact, enlightenment is the absence of struggle. And our path is not to wait to experience this. It's rather to let go this moment, again this moment, to relax this moment and come home and discover the unbounded heart and the awakened mind the Tibetans in their scriptures often refer to this profound and radical freedom that's possible when we let go I'll read you just a short line happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower but is already present in open relaxation and letting go So, we close tonight with a very short guided meditation on just this. Um, again, if you've been sitting and you're uncomfortable, stretch for a moment and then please come sitting again. And we begin with the half smile of the Buddha. So, feeling that half smile at the lips. letting the eyes be soft and feeling the flesh around the eyes soften. And sensing your intention to let go and let go, and in a very gentle way, just be with experience as it is. Feeling the spirit of the half-smile softening through the body. relaxing again through the shoulders feeling the hands be soft learning this art of re-relaxing and re-relaxing letting go softening in the stomach, the belly and with great receptivity and care letting the sensations, the aliveness of the body be felt letting the mood of the heart be felt whatever's there can be numb or busy or distracted or tight or open or relaxed or easy however it is relax and discover a quality of okayness with what's true this too this too letting go into this moment's experience wakeful relaxation noticing what's true becoming the experience as you relax into the ground of your being innate wakeful awareness sounds just happen on their own and are recognized instantly sensations rise and pass the breath moves like a breeze thoughts come and go this life appears and dances the divine play in this relaxed, open space of awareness. Closing with the prayer, may our wakefulness, may the care and openness of our hearts be of benefit to all beings. May all beings be free of suffering. May all beings awaken. May all beings touch great and natural peace.